Welcome to episode 171, Gray Divorce, What You Need to Know About Later Life Breakups, featuring Linda Hirschman, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com/clearlyclinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Ereas and today I'm delighted to be joined by Linda Hirschman. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and her specialization is working with and training on the topic of gray divorce. So that's uh, divorce proceedings for people over the age of 50, um, and not even necessarily divorce, but separation, dissolution of relationship. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. So this is a very unique specialization. Uh, Why don't you share for our listeners how you came to really hone in on this particular aspect of relational separation for folks over the age of 50? I've always done a lot of writing. And I was working on an article for a local paper. And when I was doing some research, I came upon the term gray divorce. So it caught my attention. I started reading about it. I thought, this is really interesting. And as I was reading about it, I was thinking how many of my clients were over age 50 who were coming in either for marriage counseling or discernment counseling, which is another specialty of mine that is designed. It's a brief protocol for people who are trying to decide whether to go to marriage counseling or end the relationship. So I kind of Yeah, I started giving it more thought, paying more attention and realizing even though I was over 50, I was pretty much treating divorce like divorce. And so I started asking myself questions about what does make this different and what do I need to know about working with these couples who were my contemporaries who were age 50 and older. And I learned that there were plenty of books out there, but they were basically just in a couple of specific niche categories. One is the quintessential book on gray divorce, which is written by two sociologists, and it's about 700 pages full of statistics, so not your everyday layperson reading. There were books about... There were books that were written for people who had survived and thrived after gray divorce. There were books written by attorneys and financial planners. And then there was what I call the girlfriend's guide to gray divorce genre, which was basically books written by women whose husbands pretty much had left them for younger women. And the tone of the book was, okay, girlfriend, I'm going to show you how to survive and make your life so great, he's going to regret he ever let you go. What I was looking for was what is not out there. And I realized very quickly, there is nothing comprehensive. There is nothing systemic. There is nothing culturally competent. And I realized this was my book. Um, Well, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Um, For our listeners, I had already shared this with Linda. I am the child, the adult child of gray divorce. Uh, So it's something I have experienced myself um, as an adult child and watching the systemic impact. So I can appreciate what Linda is saying about information perhaps being different for gray divorce than it is for non-gray divorce, if you will. (laughs) Um, So why don't we 
dive in. So just to define it again, so gray divorce is considered for people that are over the age of 50 dissolving a relationship. Um, where do we start? Like, why don't, why don't we start with why is gray divorce on the rise? I think many of us have seen that the divorce rates have gone up, but particularly that gray divorce has gone up and also um, the rates of divorce for multiple subsequent marriages. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. So there are several reasons for the increase of gray divorce. And I am not a statistician. I avoided grad school for 17 years after I graduated from college, in part because I was terrified of graduate statistics. But I will throw out just a couple of statistics here and there. And one is in 1990, one in 10 couples over age 50 divorced. Right now, 25% of couples age 50 divorce. And the statistics increase with each subsequent marriage. And in terms of the reasons, the number one reason is because, well, no, back up. Let me throw out one statistic, one more statistic here. 66% of gray divorces are initiated by women. The reason gray divorce has grown so much is because we can. Even as late as the 1970s, if women did have careers and if they did earn a good living, and even if they were the breadwinner in the family, women could not get mortgages without having them co-signed by a man. They could not get credit cards in their own name. They had no financial power. And so women who married and were in marriages that for whatever reason were not good marriages, they couldn't leave because they couldn't afford to leave. So as we have made more inroads in the workplace and in being able to support ourselves, it becomes easier to get a divorce because we can take care of ourselves now. So that's number one. Another reason for the rise is the increased life expectancy. It used to be that people, well, a long time ago, the average life expectancy was age 40. And even in my parents' generation, the average life expectancy was 70s. And so by the time you got to, at that time, age 60, which was the retirement age, people were not looking forward to having a long time to live. Now people might be retiring at age 65, 70, and they may be looking at 20, 25 good, healthy years. And they may be thinking to themselves, is this person that I've been with for 40 years, 50 years, or 30, 35 years, is this how I want to spend the rest of my life? And then there have been societal changes. Divorce is destigmatized. When I was growing up, I could probably count on one hand minus the thumb the number of my friend's parents who were divorced. Now, Everybody knows lots of people who are divorced. And the fourth reason for the increase is because of the advent of no-fault divorce, which is now legal in all 50 states and is required in some states. Before no-fault divorce, there had to be cause. And there were seven approved reasons to get divorced. And I can't name all seven, but they were things like adultery, incarceration, failing to consummate the marriage, abuse, addiction. 
there are two more I don't have off the top of my head. But we are systemic thinkers. That is a very linear concept. And if you had to have a cause for divorce, it meant that one person had to be the bad guy and one person had to be the good guy. And I use the word guy as a neutral term. And people had to manufacture reasons oftentimes when there were no reasons. It just was not working out or it just was not a healthy marriage. And of course, we therapists can also imagine what the impact is on the family system when a parent has to go to court and say, this is what my spouse did to me. All of those reasons, I think you and I could talk about individually because they're so impactful from an increase in women's rights to no-fault divorce, increase in life expectancy. Societally, you mentioned 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was very rare to encounter great divorce. Now it's much more mainstream. Do you feel like that's increased folks seeking therapy for it, for discernment counseling? Um, I'm just curious, and, and this may this may be non-statistical, this is not research-based, but for somebody who, who works in the field, I know from my own lived experience, just as a human in our culture, we tend to approach divorce and dissolution of long, re- of long relationships with a lot of shame. Um, do you feel like now that it's more mainstream, it's easier for people to talk about it, easier for people to, to seek help? I think more people are seeking help. And I think there are several reasons for it. And this is not something I've researched, but certainly something we all talk about a lot in the field. One is more the normalization of therapy. Again, my parents' generation, you didn't air your dirty laundry in public. And therapy has become more societally approved. The pandemic has had a lot to do with it. Now, of course, there are marriages you hear about where people did beautifully during the pandemic and they worked together as a team and they got all kinds of stuff done and developed hobbies together. And then you had those couples who found when they were forced to spend a lot of time with their partner, this is not really working well. And another thing that I thought was fascinating, not in a good way, was there were couples who had decided to divorce or were moving to divorce before the pandemic. Then all of a sudden they're locked down. And for the first time ever, I mean, I'm doing this almost 30 years now. And for the first time ever, I was getting calls from people saying, we're getting divorced, but we can't do that now. And we don't want marriage counseling, but help us coexist without killing each other during this. And then the other reason for the increase in people seeking help is because until the start of the pandemic, we could not easily do online therapy. And people think everybody was running for therapy because the pandemic messed people up in so many ways. And while that was true, the and is it opened up therapy to people for whom it wasn't accessible before in the sense that they didn't have the time to get to a therapist office. They might have had anxiety disorders or physical issues that made it difficult for them to get into a therapist office. And now people, including older people, could benefit from therapy without having to go to a therapist. Again, a complex and uh, systemic phenomenon. Thank you, because I think that framework is helpful, because 
as you're spreading the word about this, having more conversations about it, certainly I'm hearing in the clinical community more people talking about it. And it's something that, I mean, I've seen so many times in my practice, this idea of we stayed together for the kids, quote unquote, and couples who had children. And then when the final child ages out to moving outside the home or having more independence, if that's the situation for that family, that that's often the time that the hat drops, um, at least has been my experience. Can you speak to that part about like, so when we're looking at great divorces, it tend to occur between certain ages more than others. So are we looking at folks who are typically between the ages of say 50 and 65 versus individuals who are between the ages of 75 and 80 for the reasons that you already stated? It doesn't necessarily, there's not a breakdown so much between 50 and 65 or 70. When you get, say, above 75, there is probably a lot less incidence of it for a lot of reasons. But a 65-year-old is just as likely to experience a gray divorce as somebody 50. And sometimes they might be even more likely because remember, a lot of these people, we're, we're talking a lot about boomers, and boomers had a very high divorce rate. And so people who married and then divorced and then maybe got married again, later on are going to have a higher divorce rate than people who are in first marriages. Thank you. That's helpful to kind of frame it. Um, I certainly want to get to discussion today about the impact of gray divorce on family systems, on adult children, on extended family, all of that. One question I have Can you share what are some of the upsides and downsides to later life divorce in terms of the impact on functioning? Do we have higher rates of depressive disorder, lower rates? Like how does it impact somebody when compared to a divorce or a relationship dissolution that occurs earlier in the person's life? Well, the most obvious difference between a divorce when you're younger and a divorce when you're older is the when you're younger, there is more of an assumption that you will find another partner. And one of the the greatest fear for women divorcing later in life is, will I meet somebody else? Now, again, statistically, the answer is probably yes, but men partner later in life at a higher rate than women. Men are men between 50 and I don't know the upper limit, but I want to say at least 65, maybe more, are about 72% likely to remarry, whereas women, it's 60 some percent. So the odds are still in your favor, but there is a discrepancy between men and women remarrying or repartnering after a great divorce. So for women, this is the number one fear. For both men and women, finances are a big fear. And for men, losing their relationships with their adult children is a great fear which also is borne out. It happens. So in terms of the downsides, loneliness, finances, relationships with your adult children are the big ones. As far as the upsides, there is an opportunity to potentially meet a better partner for you. There is the opportunity for sexual fulfillment that you might not have had or that you might have lost in your marriage. And there is a potential opportunity for self-actualization, especially for women who have been 
tied to the house and home and may have gotten a lot of their fulfillment and had their lives organized around raising their kids and taking care of the home. You had mentioned that in partnership between a man and a woman, so I'm looking at heterosexual cisgender relationships, men are more likely to repartner after a great divorce. Women are less likely and that you find that this is kind of a source of fear for women that they may not be able to partner. Mm -hmm. Will you share a little bit more about some norms outside of your heterosexual cisgender relationship? Can you speak to that about what does gray divorce look like for other communities um, outside of this this one group that is so often referenced? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I would love to. And this is part of the whole reason to be for my work in this, to get that information out there. So fun fact for you, the highest divorce rate of any group is lesbian women. And there are several reasons for that. Number one, typically lesbian women tend to get into serious relationships more quickly than other people, than other groups of people do. And so they can flame and burn out more quickly. A second reason is lesbian women very often were in male-female marriages before and had been divorced. And so they've already been through the process. And as we said, the divorce rate is higher on second marriages. And Women tend to, lesbian women tend to be less tolerant of infidelity than their gay male counterparts. And so if there is infidelity in the relationship, that tends to be more of a reason. One big factor when we're talking about divorce in the LGBT plus community there is an added dimension, and that is shame. Remember, we're talking about people age 50 and over who were not, were not able to get married. And these were the people who were fighting for the right to marry. And after fighting so hard and for so long, there is a lot of shame in feeling like we've let down our communities. It's not just the shame that people tend to feel about getting a divorce, letting down their children, letting down their families. Lesbian and gay people tend to feel like they're letting down entire communities, that they fought for this right. And that's really powerful. And yeah, so I want to shift a little bit. We can come back to that if you have more questions, but trying to cover a lot of ground here. I also want to talk for a moment about mixed orientation marriage. And mixed orientation marriages are where partners have differing sexual sexuality, sexual preferences, or they are coming out or transitioning later in life. And again, we're dealing with people who, if they wanted to, to have a quote-unquote normal life that was validated by society, they got into conventional marriages. And this was the only way that people could have children for the most part, especially for gay men. and. Now they're getting to this age where, again, they're thinking about their mortality. They're thinking about what do I want the rest of my life to look like? And do I want to live a more authentic life? Now, Hollywood has this interesting way of portraying all this. It used to be in the early days that 
if somebody was lesbian or gay or transgender, they would show up in the movies, but they usually had to be killed off at the end. Now it's gone sort of the opposite extreme where Hollywood is portraying Hollywood and the television studios, people coming out or transitioning in later life. And the way it usually goes is that for the first 45 minutes of the movie or the first couple of episodes, the other spouse is angry and hurt and betrayed, but eventually they all come together as one big happy family. And I can name a number. You've got Grace and Frankie, you've got Transparent, there's a show called 911. There, I can name a number of shows where it's portrayed in this way. And we, as therapists know it is not that easy and is not that linear. And so what we need to be very, very aware of is that first of all, when one person is coming out and transitioning, that they probably have been going through this process for a very long time, sometimes a whole lifetime. Whereas for their spouse, they're just at the start of the process. And so we need to help everybody to feel heard and understood. And we need to avoid being inducted and be rooting for the coming out or transitioning person at the expense of invalidating the experience of the other partner. Going back to lesbian and gay divorce for a moment, there is also something very important from a systemic standpoint that I wanted to get out there. And that is our legal system is a linear system. We talk about marriage as the date you got married. I'm in a heterosexual marriage. I can tell you when somebody says, when did you get married? I can tell you the date I got married. You, again, dealing with older couples, they have, may have been together for 20, 30 years. They might have gotten married in San Francisco or Massachusetts in 2010 when it was first legalized there but their marriages were not recognized universally. And then they may have gotten married again in 2016, where it became the law of the land. And so in a divorce proceeding, they're going to be looking at, well, what was the date of marriage? Okay, the date of marriage was 2016 or 2017. But really, we want to be encouraged, we want to be aware of and encouraging our clients, if they are considering getting divorced later in life, to be working with divorce attorneys who are systemic and who are looking for the best interest of everybody and not looking at when the date of the marriage was, but what is the totality of this relationship? Thank you for sharing not only some of these statistics, but the practical implications as we consider grade divorce and relationship dissolution beyond just heteronormative ideals. Um, and I also would like to, if I may, address grade divorce in communities of color among people of color, because that also can look very different. And in communities of color, there is an inherited wealth gap in which the assets of the family, the assets of the parents are much, much less than in the white community. And so if you were starting out with much less in assets when the marriage splits up, there is much less or nothing to divide. And oftentimes the adult children 
of color find themselves having to take on the responsibilities of caring for their younger siblings if their parents have to go back to work and can't afford childcare. They find themselves having to take two or three jobs to pay more toward their education. They are much more financially impacted by gray divorce. How does that fact impact gray divorce and the rates or the process? So does that mean that it's less likely to occur among mixed race or communities of color? Or is it simply that there are these additional considerations because of the inherent bias and, and societal impacts on relationships for people of color? Both. It depends a lot on the communities. For example, in the Latino communities, people who were born in the United States are much more likely to get divorced than people who have emigrated to the United States from other Latin countries. The reason behind that is because most other Latin countries are Catholic countries where divorce still is not an acceptable thing or a legal thing. The one gap that I found, I could find no information. It may be out there. And if anybody is looking to take it on, I welcome you pick up and fill in the blanks for me. I could not find any information on gray divorce in the Asian communities. So I can't address if that's because it doesn't happen with much frequency or if it's just not being talked about. In the, in, in the Black communities, in the, first of all, the marriage rate is lower to begin with. And women tend to marry later. And so in some cases, there is a lot of gray divorce. In other cases, it's not with the same. I, I can't generalize in the Black community. It can go both ways. But one commonality I also want to say in both communities of color and, well, in the Black community, actually, and with the LGBT community is lack of kinship care, that oftentimes people might stay married because they don't have children to take care of them when they get older. Or in the case of the Black community, there is a much higher rate of the children being either incarcerated or dying at a younger age, having a higher mortality rate. And so there, that can impact the divorce rate later in life, too, if you don't have people to take care of you. And you're saying with less likelihood of subsequent generations caring for folks as they get older, that makes them less likely to pursue a gray divorce than more likely. Possibly. Interesting. Okay. Possibly. Yeah. And so for you, it's looking at all of these various factors affecting different populations and kind of teasing out where possible correlates are. Right. Who is staying married? Who is not staying married? And why they are or not staying married? Uh, Now, I did one of the sociologists I spoke with who has done a lot of work on studying Black people who are or are not divorcing has said that in the Black community, the tendency often is to not get divorced, to stay married, but to live separately. And again, that speaks to 
not having to divide up the inherited wealth, to be able to stay on insurance if you have it, to be able to maintain the perks of marriage if you can't afford to divorce. Out of curiosity, among gray divorce, if you know, is there higher or lower utilization of services like mediation? So in California, for example, mediation is the preferred method if there are minor children involved, um, particularly to try to figure out who's going to get what, what's going to happen with child rearing. When it comes to gray divorce, if you happen to know, does it tend to go through a formal legal proceeding or is it more or less likely to go through mediation? I don't really have an answer to that, Beth. I think a lot of it has to do with your geographic area. As you said, you're in an area where mediation is the preferred way to go. I, as a therapist, always encourage all of my clients, if they're going to get divorced, to do it in the least expensive most healthy systemic way possible. And so mediation is sort of the the lowest level of expensive intrusiveness. And then you've got collaborative family law attorneys, and then you get into the traditional divorce attorneys. Um, you had mentioned earlier in the interview, and I want to go back to it, about the impact on the family system relating to gray divorce. Certainly, in clinical community, we pay, we tend to pay a lot of attention to the impact of separation and divorce on young children without necessarily a whole lot of attention paid to older children. Again, speaking myself as the adult child of gray divorce, this was something that I was curious about. And I remember in college picking up a book called, um, I think it was like The Lifetime Impact of Divorce, a Longitudinal Study, I believe was the name of the book, and it's now old. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that book (laughs) helped open my eyes to the norms among adult children who've gone through their parents' divorce, about the lower likelihood of that person marrying themselves, about more hesitation getting into relationships and cohabitating. Like for me, at that point in my life, I was picking up a book going, oh my gosh, there's some of this stuff that's in my heart. Apparently other people are thinking this too. Um, Can you speak to that and kind of the impact of gray divorce on a system at large, not just on the parents? I would love to. And Another fun fact for you, the absolute worst time for parents to divorce is the first year after the kids leave for college. Why? Because when a child leaves for college, and I say child even though they're legally adults or turning adults, but we all know that you're in that in-between stage where you have some of the rights without most of the responsibilities. But when you're leaving for college, it is a time to individuate. It's a time to explore and to define who you are and to find maybe your groups of people without being under your parents' roof and under your parents' influence. And When you go to college and you're told, by the way, we're getting a divorce, then you can't really transition completely. You've got one step in college and you've got one step at home, especially if you're living away from home, if you go away to college. And so you're always wondering, What's happening at home? What's happening with my parents? What's going to happen with me? Where am I going when I come home for spring break? And if you, I want to get back to what you said at the very beginning about people waiting until the kids are older. Think about the burden that puts on 
an adult child to hear your parents saying, well, we were never really happy. We were just waiting until you got older. Like, what does that mean for the child to have that put on them? To stop describing my life. Yeah, I can see by your expression (laughs) that something is connecting with you here. Stop describing my life. Um, Yeah, I I think, I mean, I've I've certainly (laughs) seen it in my practice a lot. I experienced it myself um, that it is really, really common for people to say, well, we're going to stay together for the kids. So, you know, I'm going to sleep in this bedroom and your other parents going to sleep in that bedroom. And like, maybe the parents spring it on the child after they've already left home, or maybe it's imminent. My case, I was in high school, but it was it really, it was solidified when I left for college was when it became the thing. And so when you said, you know, what parent or uh, what house are they going to go back to? during holiday breaks, like my eye was like twitching. Uh, Because yes, I like definitely like lived that situation. And it's something that I've really wondered about. Um, You had said, you think it's one of the absolute worst times for parents to choose to end their relationship. Is that based on your clinical opinion in watching this play out for young adults? Is that based on research? Is it both? Can you speak to that? Like, what makes you say that? Yeah, this is not coming from me. This is coming from therapists I interviewed for the book who specialize in working with adult children of divorce. That's really interesting. Yeah. So then just humor me here. If parents were dissatisfied in their union and wanted to separate or divorce, were it not the year that an adult child leaves home, whether that's for college or for independent living or whatever the situation is, when would that happen? Is it later in the adult child's life or is it earlier when the child is still at home and there's more arguably, perhaps more systemic support for that child during this transition? That would be a great thing for couples to go to a therapist to work out. And again, to look at their family system and to look at their child and how is their child adjusting to college life and what how might they be impacted? And they may come to the agreement that, you know what, we're just, we've stayed together this long. We're going to sit tight for a while because our kid is sort of, they're homesick. They're having difficulty with college anyway. We'll wait until they are more established or they may just decide to wait a few more years until all the kids are out of the house, which, again, we'll talk in a minute about what happens when the kids are in their 20s or 30s or 40s when the parents get divorced. But I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all solution on it. Again, I think it speaks to the importance of we have to look at this as a systemic issue, not just an issue between the parents. And the other thing is, what was the parents' marriage like? And you had said that they're, that children of divorce are not marrying to the same degree. And when you have parents who were in a low-conflict marriage, who got along well transactionally, who seemed to do everything just fine together, but the romantic spark was not there and they decide to divorce. The kids start to question, the adult children start to question, was my whole life a lie? My parents looked like they had a good marriage. How can I trust what is happening in my relationship? And that is it really impacts the ability to create an adult relationship of your own 
when you can't trust what you saw in your own house. What are some other impacts on adult children of divorce? Well, I would like to go to the work of Pauline Boss on ambiguous loss. This is really important when we talk about adult children of divorce. So for anybody not familiar with ambiguous losses, they're defined as losses that are not generally recognized by society for which there is no grieving process or ritual and of indeterminate ending. And for adult children, when their parents divorce, the societal expectation is, well, they're adults, they can understand it, they've got their own lives, they can just deal with it and move on. And we as clinicians need to be offering a place to recognize, acknowledge, and give adult children of divorce a voice to talk about how they were impacted. And when the children, when the parents divorce and the children are adults, there's a tendency to parentify the kids, to talk about them like they're friends. And do you believe what your father did to me? Or, you know, I can't believe I put up with this from your mother and to triangulate them. And we need to be working with both parents and the adult children in either not triangulating, recognizing these are your children. There's always a limit to how much of a friend your child can and should be, or in the case of the children, to help them establish boundaries so that they don't get caught between the parents and they don't get trapped into loyalty issues and choosing sides. There are also very real financial consequences. And we talked about adult children of divorce in communities of color, but in any divorce where there are adult children, there are consequences How do you negotiate rituals? How do you divide yourselves up between all the parents on the holidays, especially if you are married or partnered and you have parents who are divorced and they're both remarried or repartnered and your partner, their parents are divorced and remarried or repartnered? Like you potentially have all these different homes that you have to negotiate between. And there are childhood rituals that we as that we grow up with that we want to give to our children. And suddenly those are no longer there when our parents divorce or they change. And there are also financial consequences because you may have been told Your parents are going to pay for your wedding or they're going to pay for grad school. They're going to give you a down payment on a house. And now suddenly they're saying, well, we had to divide the money and we can't give you what we thought we were going to. And adult children often lose childcare for their own children when their parents divorce because they may have a parent or both parents who are helping out and providing childcare, and suddenly one or both of the parents has to go back to work, or oftentimes a parent moves away or out of the area and can't be there in the same way they used to. So there are a lot of adjustments. Listening to you speak about this, Certainly appreciating not only the impact, and I've seen this real time in my own family, not only the impact of divorce at any point, but a gray divorce on the adult children. And then if the adult child or children have their own children, the impact on the grandkids, that's been an interesting one for me to observe about, well, 
now grandma is married to so-and-so, but grandpa is not. And they'll travel together for whatever holiday here. But like, no, that's not who was married to that person. That person was married to that person. But then they got like, and it's, it's just really interesting. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking about this, you know, this, th- this is my life that you're describing. And so for me, it, you know, brings up a lot in just my own reflection and my growth. When it comes to working with adult children of divorce, and specifically adult children of gray divorce, are there any particular recommendations or resources that you have? Because it is, as you said, ambiguous loss, um, that at least speaking for myself to go off on my own to have physical uh, independence, and then not know the address where I was going to be going come holiday break. Like I remember that transition. I remember not knowing what a home was going to look like where my parents were after so many considerations. So it wasn't just a loss of the marriage. It was a loss of my childhood home. Um, It was a loss of a community where my parents had lived and where I called home for however many years, because at least for me, my parents then moved into very different places where they had lived before. Um, how, how do adult children work through that grief? Or is it really just that? Is it doing grief work? The most important part of that question was the question itself. How do adult children work through that grief? And That goes back to what I was saying about this recognition that there is a grieving process. And it starts with us as therapists to recognize and understand that not only is there a grieving process, but probably nobody else has recognized that and understood that and has said to an adult child of divorce, you have every right to feel the way you do. And I want to hear about this. And I'm going to validate this for you. And that's where it starts. When you are working with parents, who are considering or working through their own gray divorce, how do you talk to them about the systemic impact? Because certainly it's not something that they haven't considered. I mean, I, I, at least in my work, historically, when people are discussing breaking up a long-term relationship, particularly with children involved, it is not something that is done (laughs) willy-nilly. Typically is something that was a lot of thought and a lot of heartache and many sleepless nights. How do you encourage those gray divorcing parents to recognize the impact on the entire system and what to anticipate from that system? Well, one of the questions I ask comes from Bill Doherty's discernment counseling protocol. And I use this question whether I'm doing discernment counseling or whether I'm working with people who are in for marriage counseling or who have pretty much decided to divorce but want to talk about it therapeutically for whatever reason. And that question is, what impact, if any, how, how do your children factor into your decision-making process is the question. And by asking the question, you are, if they haven't thought about it, that brings it into the conversation of, oh, should I be thinking about the impact of this? And if they have thought about it, then it opens up an avenue for exploration in a decision-making process. And it doesn't mean we're taking a position on it. It's not a judgmental question. It's a systemic question. As we wind up our time together today, I still, I mean, there's so much here. I have so many questions about like, what interventions do you use? You know, you had mentioned just the different considerations about 
financial impact, kinship care, things like that on older adults that would not be part of the consideration for a 32-year-old necessarily who was considering um, ending a long-term relationship. Um, those are all perhaps conversations for another time. But for our listeners that are wanting to learn more about kind of gray divorce and how to work with individuals going through or who have gone through gray divorce, what are some resources for them? There is my book, which is called Gray Divorce, Everything You Need to Know About Later Life Breakups. I would encourage people to connect with me through my website, which is lindahirschman.com, and that's H-E-R-S-H-M-A-N. There are some other very good resources. There are some other good books out there on adult children of divorce, and I have references to them in the back of my book, but also, again, you can just look online and it will give you the reviews and the ratings and the stars and all that. And usually they let you read if you're going on Amazon, you can generally read like 10 pages of the book. So that will give you a handle of, is this useful for me? And even though I'm saying there are niche books from financial planners and divorce attorneys, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing if you need legal and financial advice. And I have a whole chapter in my book on seeking support. And it talks about support groups. It talks about different kinds of therapies and which kinds of therapies might be the most helpful to you, given what you want to work on as you're going through the process, either as an ACOD or as somebody divorcing or divorce questioning later in life. It talks about online resources and support. I am always a little bit careful when I say to people, you know, there are plenty of online support groups because oftentimes you get the most extreme versions of what's happening out there and they end up not being very supportive. So if you're joining a support group or finding support in other ways, what I would say is vet it, who is running it, who is moderating it, what is the purpose of this group to see if it's helpful or not. And then I also talk about a lot of alternative ways of going through the process that can be done on their own or conjunction with therapy. There are yoga therapies, there's dance movement therapy, there's art therapy, there is journaling, all kinds of things like that. So there are plenty, too numerous to say on here. Thank you. I really appreciate you listing out so many considerations like the financial planning, the actual emotional support, and then the kind of practical piece of what it looks like in therapy. Um, for our listeners, again, we've spent this last hour with Linda Hirschman. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and her book is Great Divorce. So please look into that if you want to learn more as kind of a foundational understanding about this topic. Linda, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us for this hour. You've shared so much information. And um, as the adult child of a great divorce, uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. Because uh, it's certainly, you know, it, it is a systemic issue. And I appreciate your approach viewing it through the lens, not just of what's happening between a couple, but also the impact of society on that couple and then the impact of that separation on the society, on the world around them. Um, so thank you. I appreciate that kind of forest through the trees perspective. And I'm grateful to have had you here today. Thank you. And if I could just quickly say two things other than thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure and I'm thrilled. Um, the two things I do want to say are the full title is Gray Divorce, Everything You Need to Know About Later Life Breakups. 
there are a lot of books that start with gray divorce. So yeah, um, you'll get to it quicker either by putting in my name or by putting in the full name. And the other thing is I will be putting out a workbook for therapists and other divorce professionals who are working with clients who are gray divorcing or adult children of divorce. And so if anybody is interested in being informed when that comes out, again, contact me and I'll keep you in the loop. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.